0: From the Ecology Prime Studios, this is Circle for Original Thinking. I am your host, Glenn Aparicio-Perry. Welcome to Circle for Original Thinking, America's electronic talking circle for visionary thinkers. An open forum for fresh ideas and timeless wisdom applied to today's political and ecological challenges. Each week, we bring together creative thinkers from a variety of different traditions. And we ask the hard questions on the important issues of the day, political polarization, climate change, virulent viruses, and other symptoms of humanity being out of balance with the natural world. Our goal is to recreate a sacred world and a sacred America, a new and improved version of E Pluribus Unum, From the Many to the One. But this time, not leave anybody out. Join us as we embark on this quest. Today we are going to be discussing Native American influence on the founding mothers of the United States. And you heard me right. I said mothers, not fathers. So much has been said about the founding fathers and their revolution. But in the 19th century, there was also a lesser-known revolution, a lesser-known really kind of a declaration of independence called the Declaration of Sentiments that emphatically declared the right of women to be fully equal in this country. And in both cases, the founding fathers and the founding mothers, were profoundly influenced by Native Americans and Native American values. And before I say more, I want to introduce our honored guests, Dr. Sally Roche Wagner and Congresswoman Deb Holland. And uh, say hello if you can. Yeah, I just hello. want to. Hello, hello. hello Welcome listeners. both. It's Welcome both.
1: With the both of you today and d- definitely an amazing honor to be with Sally Roche Wagner. Um, thank you for inviting me.
2: Thank well, the, you. the honor is mine, Congresswoman. <laughs> I am so honored to be able to uh, participate with you and to learn from you.
0: Thank you. Thank you. So. Dr. Wagner is a feminist pioneer, a speaker, and activist, and the author of several books, including Sisters in Spirit, Haudenosaunee or Iroquois Influence on the Early American Feminists and the Women's Suffrage Movement. Dr. Wagner was among the first persons ever to receive a Ph.D. for work in women's studies from UC Santa Cruz and was the founder of one of the first college-level women's studies programs, in the country. She is also the founding director of the Matilda Jocelyn Gage Foundation and a faculty member of Syracuse University. She was a member of the New York State Women's Suffrage Commission and a former consultant to the National Women's History Project. Sally appeared in the Ken Burns documentary, Not For Ourselves Alone, the story of Elizabeth Katie Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, for which she wrote the accompanying faculty guide for PBS and she was also an historian in the PBS special One Woman, One Vote. She's been interviewed on NPR's All Things Considered and Democracy Now. Now, Sally is being joined by Congresswoman Deb Holland, an enrolled member of the Laguna Pueblo and also of Jemez Pueblo Heritage, and one of the first Native American women to be elected to the U.S. Congress, serving New Mexico's first congressional district. And I'm proud to say that she is my representative and I'm very proud of her and her work. So Congresswoman Holland she grew up in a military family but she's one hard working woman who put herself through college then law school at UNM while running her own business the Pueblo Salsa and and she began her political activism quite a long time ago as a campaign organizer and volunteer and I remember, remember on, the, uh, on when you were on uh, a Democracy Now! you spoke about volunteering even for Barack Obama. And then she ran for New Mexico Lieutenant Governor in 2014 and became the, became the first Native American woman to be elected to lead a state party. And it was during that time as state party chair that she traveled to Standing Rock and stood side by side with the Standing Rock Sioux Nation water protectors protesting the Dakota Access Pipeline, which was in violation of the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty, which has been violated a lot, we might add. And all this culminated in Congresswoman Holland's historic 2018 election as one of the first two Native American women to ever be elected to the U.S. Congress, along with Sharice Davids of the Ho-Chunk Nation. And in her first term, of hopefully many, she's gone on to play an integral role in protecting the environment and being an advocate for renewable energy, campaign finance reform, women's equality, coronavirus relief for Native communities, among many other causes. So welcome both Congresswoman and Dr. Wagner. It's a great blessing to have you both on the circle for original thinking you you've both been on democracy now now you're on the big time no just kidding okay so how how (laughs) how are you good both doing good okay i'm gonna set up my first question um i'm actually gonna read a paragraph uh from my own book because it was so influenced by you dr wagner um, and this is from the regarding the influence of Native America on the 19th century women's movement. How did the first radical suffragists of the United States, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Lucretia Mott and Matilda Gage, come to a vision of equality for women? All these women were living in 19th century America, a time when a woman fleeing a violent husband would be routinely returned to him by police just as runaway slaves were returned to their masters. How did these women who lived in a society where they were required to pay taxes but had no voice in the direction of government, could not vote, could not run for office, lost all property rights once they married, had no right of divorce, and if they separated from their husbands, lost all custody rights to their children, whose oppression was sanctioned by the Bible with their husbands having the legal right and religious responsibility to physically discipline them. How in the world did these women who were not even permitted to speak aloud in church have the courage to ask for equal rights? So, Dr. Wagger, how did these women have the courage to ask for equal rights?
2: The condition of women in the United States in the first half of the 19th century was one in which they were considered under the law to be legally dead once they married. They were dead in the law. It wasn't that they didn't have rights. It was way beyond that. They had no legal existence. And so, of course, they had no right to their bodies. Husbands could rape, could beat their wives and there were no legal sanctions against that as long as they didn't inflict permanent damage. Um, women had no right to their children once they married. The, the, a husband could will away an unborn child on his deathbed and that child would be taken from the mother and given to its rightful owner. Uh, women woman had no right to anything that she believed that, any belongings, any possessions. Um, let me take you to the International Council of Women in 1888. This is the first time that women have gathered internationally on United States soil to talk about their condition. And an early ethnographer, Alice Fletcher, who had spent time with the Omaha Nation, she tells this story. She's visiting with uh, friends. It was actually the LaFleche family, uh, Omaha Nation. And one and, and the uh, woman of the household gave away a horse. And Alice said, without thinking, I said, haven't you better check with your husband? And she said, the merriment with which my statement was met It was as though she came from another planet. These Native women just start laughing. Why would you ever ask your husband? And she said, for a minute, I had forgotten that I was with Native women, that I was with Indian women. Mm -hmm. And she said, what I'm hearing from Indian men and women is that the men say, you know, we're really worried about what's going to happen to us when we come under United States law but we are more worried about the women because they will lose their position as women as well as their position as Indians. And she knew the writing was on the wall and the native people recognized that as well. Now this is that ironic period of time in which non-native women, women from the settler colonial tradition no native women in the the area of what is now recognized as New York state but i am now in on on Onondaga original aboriginal territory uh and the six nations um are the original occupants of what became New York state but they still have sovereign nations within and um So these women, these non-Native women, knew Native women, and they knew the position that these women held. Here's an example. Elizabeth Cady Stanton writes about how clan mothers did, and they have been doing this for a thousand years, continue to, the clan mothers nominate and hold in position the chiefs to represent them in the Grand Council. They have the responsibility to nominate, to hold in position, and to remove if the men did not live up to their responsibilities. Uh, One of those responsibilities is that he cannot have abused a woman or a child. Uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, in a, a speech before the National Council of Women in 1891, says, "You know, the clan mother cuts off the horns of the uh, of the chief if he doesn't live up to his responsibilities." And she talks also about how uh, divorce. She was, she was. She was (laughs) torn to shreds, if you will, for taking the position that women should have the right to leave a loveless and a dangerous marriage. And instead, the idea then was that marriage was not an agreement between two human beings. It was a covenant with God, and it couldn't be broken. And so the divorce laws didn't exist. And she says women should have it. And she points to Native women. She says, among the Haudenosaunee, the Iroquois, the the wife will put the belongings outside of the longhouse. And that's divorce Indian style. So they took leadership from, they took direction from, they saw women who had more authority on this land before white settlers than women have in the United States today. And that gave them the possibility. Now, for the really progressive women like Matilda Jocelyn Gage and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, they saw beyond equality because what they saw was a world in harmony and balance. And they ended up going beyond saying we just want our rights to saying we have to transform society. Elizabeth Cady Stanton's final model of her life was the few have no right to the luxuries of life while the many are denied the necessities. Mm-hmm. And she called for a cooperative, not a competitive society. So they were influenced not just on the vote, not just on divorce and a woman's right to her children, a right to safety. Rape did not exist, and when it did it was dealt with so harshly, and it took me 300 years of looking at 300 years of settler experience to find, it just, I kept looking for, there's got to be evidence, there wasn't, that if it happened, it was dealt with so severely. So it's they saw a vision of a world in balance and harmony, a world of real equality, in which in which <laughs> equality is a step beyond it for its responsibilities and that inspired them, that gave them the knowledge that it was impossible, that it was possible. What they were told was impossible. Women were clinging vines. Women were not as smart as men. Women could not function on their own. The, the It was God's divine plan that women should be under the authority of men. These were all the arguments. Mm. They saw in action, this is what a world can look like. And that's what they went for.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Sally. That's, that's beautiful. Beautiful. Wow. Um, now... Congresswoman Holland, you're you're from Laguna Pueblo, and I I, I uh, knew a woman from Laguna Pueblo who was born in Cubero, Paula Gunn Allen, the scholar who who wrote the book, The Sacred Hoop, of which the subtitle is Recovering the Feminine in American Indian Traditions. So, there obviously there was something to recover. So. Uh, could you speak to us of how things have changed from the picture that, that, that Dr. Wagner just laid out till over the, over, over time. And also, you know, how you see yourself in this picture. And are, are, I'm, I'm wondering if you see yourself as part of the recovery of the feminine in Native America, or do you focus more on your national role in the political nation? And, and it, of course it could be both end and, if it is, I mean, how do you navigate all of this? This cannot be easy.
1: <laughs> right. What happened with Pueblo society is that um, we had colonization. The end of the 15th century, the Spanish came. If you look at the Pueblo governmental structure, all of those uh, offices, uh, governor, lieutenant governor, Fiscali, Meruma, those are all Spanish terms. And, um and so it's almost like, uh, you know, for whatever reason, um, you know, the Spanish idea of, of men running everything just kind of took hold of the Pueblos and never let go. So um, back in, I think it was 1996 at Laguna, uh, we were able to get a referendum on the ballot, on the tribal election ballot, to ask Uh, the membership, whether women should be able to run for office out there. And uh, we were successful in that. And um, I mean, I just, you know, some, I think some women, they, they want to lead. They want an opportunity to lead their communities, to, to give back, to, uh, to uh, move things forward. And for me, uh, I knew I couldn't do that within my tribe, and that's why I decided, decided to run for office um, in the state. I ran for Lieutenant Governor in 2014. Uh, you know, the, the Democrat, it was the governor's race. The governor was, um, was unsuccessful, and then, um, and then I ran for this office in the meantime, in between 2014 and 2018 when I got elected to this office. I was the state native uh, I'm sorry, I was the state party chair of the Democratic Party of New Mexico. So um, so that's I mean, I think that um, that yes, colonization has a has to a large degree um, encumbered women from from, you know, leading in in many instances. And, um, I mean, it's different in different parts of the country, right? Um, on the East Coast, there have been women chiefs uh, for centuries and centuries. In New Mexico, in the Southwest, um, we were, you know, we were colonized by the Spanish and then the Franciscans uh, came in on the religious part um and so um so it's different i know on di- different in er- different areas of the country but but uh, you know what i realized right now in 2020 and what i realized in 2018 is that representation matters there had never been a native american woman elected to congress and i i just felt like um we should have one or two in this case
0: <laughs> yes yes thank you Thank you. That's beautiful. Okay. Uh, and I'm so glad that you ran and won. And, you know, I want to I turn to uh, national issues a little bit because I want to talk a little bit about the current Trump administration. Now, you know, it seems to me there's a real obvious danger in this current administration to both the people and the environment. But there's also something else happening that's kind of hopeful in response to mr Trump including what happened for you congresswoman Holland you know you may have been partly inspired by the the women's March certainly it was at the time the largest gathering or largest protest march ever it's since been exceeded by black lives matter so the two largest protests in the happened in the last three and a half years and and why is that well I uh, I'd be curious to see what you, what you think but you know my personal take is that it seems like Donald Trump is this kind of trickster figure now not not exactly a trickster figure in the native american context where the trickster is consciously trying to engender to shake up uh uh the a person or 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 group so that they are so that they can see things in a higher level of integration he doesn't seem to be conscious of that like a hayoka or a koshare but somehow it seems like the people are awakening you know it seems like he is a catalyst for revealing the american shadow and because of this people are awakening so people seem to have an opportunity to see america as it really is and to make substantive change so my question for both of you you know is with the breakthrough that seems to have occurred in the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, is this an opportunity to educate the public on the true history of this country vis-a-vis Native America and the women's movement? And can we do this in a way that empowers both the women, Native America, and the African American communities? Because those histories have been very intertwined. So um and perhaps uh, congresswoman holland if you want to address it well, first
1: I, I think that um well first of all uh yes uh, the black lives matter movement happened and what was different this time is that it took on a multicultural like everybody was marching right it wasn't just mm. black people we everybody st- wanted to stand with them against police brutality uh, and then it ended up being a, a, a protest on um, on inequity. Why are there so many rich why is so much of the nation 's wealth uh, congregated at the top with a few rich folks and everyone else is struggling uh, right uh, at the same time donald trump 's trying to take away health care for millions of people. Um, I mean, it just seemed like everything welled up. Um, And while we're at it, let's uh, continue our activism, because there have been activists for decades and decades working to uh, get rid of racist stereotypes in sports teams, right, mascots. Um, So it just seemed like everything was on the table. This is what, I mean, we have real complaints about our country and how it's been uh, sidelining folks for decades, including Native Americans. Um, That was further, uh, uh, you know, the the more light was shed on the disparities in these communities because of the COVID-19 pandemic as well. Uh, You have communities of color who were suffering uh, higher rates of this pandemic than non-communities of color. Uh, why is that? Because they don't have the infrastructure, they don't have the nutritious food, they don't have uh, the means, they don't have uh, the, you know, the paychecks and the benefits that, that go with uh, a living wage uh, to care for their families uh, in the way they should be able to. So I think that the protest just, I mean, it was everything and, um, and people said enough is enough, basically. And so, um, so yes, uh, Native American issues are on the table with respect to uh, the protests. And um, I mean, look, we, we have suffered greatly under this president. This president, uh, he's sliced and diced uh, pieces of our public lands that have sacred sites on them. He's gone to the Southern border and used dynamite to blast Ah, uh, sacred burial grounds of of the Tana Adum tribe. Uh, and it, I mean, it just is never ending. we're we're consistently trying to protect my ancestral homeland of Chaco Canyon against gas and oil drilling. Who does that? Mm. Right? Like it, we we are enough is enough. And uh, so i don't I, I don't blame people for protesting. My daughter has been out there since the protest started and um and i i we and and the congress the house the house democrats are responding to that we responded with the george floyd justice and policing act we've responded with uh, protections to the affordable care act we've responded uh with the heroes act um so uh we're just hoping that um that you know the senate republicans get on board and and realize that we need to do something to help working families in this country
0: thank you uh beautiful at and, uh, and dr wagner same question
2: i would just on the the micro level uh, i'm the director of the matilda jocelyn gage foundation and we run the matilda jocelyn gage center for social justice dialogue uh, when the Black Lives Matter, uh, when the demonstration started, one woman stood in front of the Gage Center with a sign, Within, and we are in a Trump, Republican, uh, heavily white community, the Gage Center is, the Gage Home, and um, within three days there were 50 people there, almost all white people and supporting Black Lives Matter and Native Lives Matter. We're raising the issue, and it, it rises, the issue of, uh, of missing and murdered Native women. Uh, that's a major issue that uh, I think there's legislation pending regarding that and uh, bringing that to the forefront. So the, the potential for activism in this moment. The other thing is in the uh, 100th anniversary of the suffrage amendment, which is this year, the issue of racism, many of us as scholars are raising the issue of the racism in the women's rights movement, which meant that while there was a constitutional amendment, women of color didn't get the vote. In, in 1920, in practice, because of voter suppression laws, which continue today in African American communities and Native American communities. The, the, you know, complex of ways in which there's an attempt to keep people from voting, and it's successful. And the, um, the other thing is that in this moment, to raise the issue of Native American Citizenship Act in 1924 finally meant that if Native people chose to be citizens, they were able to and could vote. But again, voter suppression kept them from voting in many places until the 1960s and 70s, like it did with African Americans until the Voting Rights Act in 1965. So the issues simultaneously of, of the, the exposing now publicly in a way that is capturing the attention of the dominant culture as well, of the murder of, of African-Americans and Native Americans. That issue is joining with the 100th anniversary of, of women's suffrage, and I think bringing those issues of racism to the forefront.
0: Thank you. All right. Dr. Wagner, what is your view of what's happening now with Confederate monuments being taken down and and uh, this movement to, to uh, uh, address this in our nation's history.
2: There, I have um, a couple of reactions. One is that there are monuments not just to typically white men who have often been involved in warfare. I think that that prioritizes that as the most important part of history, and the the men who are eulogized. Most of those monuments went up in the 1920s and 30s. It was the rise of the Ku Klux Klan. That time period it was a rise in in uh, you know Americanism. It was a rise in let us celebrate the white Protestant people of wealth, especially men. And those monuments came in an historic moment, and they, they strengthened a particular way of understanding who we are. And that way is not inclusive that way celebrates racism, it celebrates individualism, and it fosters that way of our being in the world instead of challenging it. You know, history isn't changed. Reform doesn't happen because of individuals. They may spark it, but it's movements that change history. So to think about about instead of that way of interpreting history, you know, great white men, great white wars, but instead thinking about who has worked for justice? And what does that movement look like? And how do we eulogize that? How do we memorialize that? How do we acknowledge that all of this land is sacred and that all of this land is indigenous? How do we, instead of putting the stamp of white settler colonialism on it, how do we acknowledge and recognize the sacredness of all of it? And, and those sites sacred, especially to native people, all the land, but there are places that are especially. one of the things I really think about with those with those monuments is that they are public health menaces. They're dangerous for public health. Now, the American Psychological Association has now recognized that toxic masculinity, is a, a public health hazard <laughs> and racism is a public health hazard for both people of color and for non, non-people of color that it is um it's an unhealthy uh practice and so i think if we look at those monuments as they're as dangerous to our public health as tobacco smoking. And if they're to be kept, they need to have this may be dangerous to your public you know, to your health to view and and accept this monument. One of the painful realities is that at the same time that these white suffragists were being inspired by Native women and new Native women. Matilda Jocelyn Gage was given an honorary adoption into the Wolf Clan of the Mohawk Nation in 1893. That same year, she was arrested for voting in her own nation. You know, the irony of that and the the influence of seeing, you know, here I am in my own nation being arrested while women have political voice and have now for a thousand years uh, in the Haudenosaunee traditional cultures. But at the same time that these women are being inspired, there is the Christianize and civilize the Indians policy that Congresswoman Holland was talking about in terms of the Spanish and the, and the Catholic missionaries, but that happened all over the country the 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 separate nations of native people were they were you know given out as almost like spoils of war to different denominations and the idea was we will kill the indian to save the man it was a it was an attempt at cultural genocide it was an attempt to destroy everything Indian and to and to turn these native people into replicas of of um, white Protestant or Catholic Christians uh, and uh, the the cultural destruction, the spiritual destruction, the psychological destruction of that continues today. So at the same time that there's inspiration from Native nations. There is the attempt to destroy the same conditions. So while white women are gaining ascendancy by the inspiration of Native women, the white nation, the United States, is forcing Native women into the position that white women are rising from. It's happening in exactly this moment, the 1848, 1850, the turn, the the um, middle of the 19th century. Uh, the boarding school really comes into play in the 1870s heavily, and it's only recently been abolished. So there's generations of children that were beaten, children that never were given love, never learned how to practice family life when they came from cultures where children were never beaten, where the family life was so intact. And, you know, that, that intergenerational trauma that continues today, it's, there, there's the story of inspiration and there's the story of, of destruction that are simultaneous.
0: That's fascinating. Thank you very much. That's very deeply insightful. Thank you. Wow, I have so much respect for both these women, Dr. Sally Roche Wagner and Congresswoman Deb Holland. What a joy it is to be with you both today. Thank you. Okay, um, Congresswoman Holland, I know that you sponsored a bill on Confederate monuments, and uh, I wonder what if you could expound upon that a little bit and what your feelings are about the about what needs to be done at this time in confronting this era in our history?
1: Sure. Well, um, I think, I mean, basically, I know, I mean, that's been an issue as well, right, in these protests that we've been experiencing across our country is uh, Black Lives Matter. They don't want to be reminded of all of the racism that they experienced at the hands of all these folks who they've chosen to make uh, statues out of. Um, and I mean, basically, yeah, yes, we need to acknowledge all of our history, even the dark pages of history so that we can learn and heal. Uh, we have a job to do in this country, and that's to combat institutional racism. We need to, agno- you know, we need to acknowledge, uh, the pain that institutional racism causes, uh, stereotypes, as I mentioned earlier, with the ma- Indian mascots, the stereotypes of, uh, Native Americans, um, racist stereotypes. Um, we need to, uh, Acknowledge that painful history, um, he, learn to heal, and then um, make, a better, make a better future for everybody.
0: Mm. Thank you. You know, I happen to have lived uh, uh, in Alcalde when I first moved to New Mexico in 1994. I lived right across the street from the Juan de Oñate Center, and I was there when uh, the foot, of the statue was uh, chopped off in an act of, you might say, poetic justice, because Juan de Unate chopping off the feet of forty Acama Braves. Um, but uh, I think that you've also been, you probably have also have a lot of feelings about that. Recently, that statue has been taken away. How did that happen?
1: Well, it's my understanding that the um, leadership in Rio Arriba County removed it. Um, uh, my guess is they you know they didn't want it to be vandalized Uh, likewise the Onyate statue near the Albuquerque Museum was also removed and I mean I think yes we need need to acknowledge this history it's all of our history right it's all of America's history and so um, we have to acknowledge it, heal, and, and then work for a better tomorrow.
0: And I'd, I'd like to ask a question for both of you. It's the same question I asked last, last week But we had on the show Bruce Johansson and Oren Lyons, you know, and it's, it's, it's this. I mean, how can we – I love what you just said, Congresswoman Holland, about our history. So, so how can we – and by we, I mean everyone – you know, Native Americans, African-Americans, Asian-Americans, Latinos, white Americans. How can we trust in a truth and reconciliation process? I mean, that's a particular issue in Native America, but, but how can we all trust in a truth and reconciliation process? Maybe this is what we need, but how can we trust it?
1: I think, first of all, if you're doing a truth and reconciliation process, uh, you need to have the, the people whose lives are affected by this at the table. That's why representation is so important. So uh, so that's what we need. You know, I, I, this image sticks with me. It was, it was a while back, long before I was ever in Congress. Uh, there were a group of congressmen, men, congressmen, Having a discussion on women's reproductive issues, right. and there were no women. There were right. no women at the table. So, if we're talking about about Native American rights, if we're talking about Native American sacred sites or environmental issues to do with Native Americans, if we're talking about Confederate statues, if we're talking about uh, uh, you know our terrible, horrible past of slavery. Uh, if we're talking about uh, border issues, right, the, the horrible Trump border wall, those various pe- people, they need to have a seat at the table so that we can hear from them. Representation matters. And so, uh, so absolutely, we just need to make sure that folks whose lives are being affected by any of these things, that they're the ones speaking, that they're the ones whose voices are on record uh i mentioned earlier about the trump border wall and the uh the blasting that they did of sacred burial sites there we had the chairman of the tribe um in a hearing uh so that his voice could be on the record and uh and
2: that's what we that's what we need to do
0: beautiful and dr wagner
2: i i would just echo that and and thank the congresswoman for those Thoughts but and also, just add that, as we repopulate history, that same process must happen. We will not know who we are as a people until every single group has told their story and their history.
0: Well, thank you both for being here to speak from your hearts and your experience and and uh, it's a great blessing to have listened to you both and uh, thank thank you so much next week we'll be joined by David Abram and a guest to be announced thank you so much it's been a real joy Bye.
1: bye bye it was lovely thank you so much the both of you
0: this program is made possible in part by Select Books Waterside Publications, Bizgenics, and the Ecology Prime Media Channel. Native flute music by Orlando Secatero from the Pathways CD. Liberty Song by artist Ron Crowder, written by Ron Crowder, Jim Casey, and Danny Casey. Post-production editing by Scout Media Strategies. The Circle for Original Thinking is a grassroots think tank whose mission is to seek out the deep origins of contemporary thought in order to remember and restore heart-centered wisdom for humanity and all our relations on Earth. For more information, go to OriginalThinking.us or OriginalPolitics.us. and You can also find and purchase my books, Original Thinking and Original Politics, there. Thank you for listening, and until next week, many blessings to all.